Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Jeremy Petranka is the Assistant Dean of the Master of Quantitative Management Program at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University. I'm excited to share this conversation, so let's jump right in. All right, so we have Jeremy here. Uh, Jeremy, but also you go by Jay. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Uh, I'm excited for today's conversation. So you're the assistant dean of the Master of Quantitative Management Program, which is a fancy way of saying data analytics, correct? You got it. And you're at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University. So what do you like most about these programs? Because this is a newer program that's evolving across universities. So what draws you to this program and, and what do you think this program is doing to prepare the next generation for the future of work? You're not remotely kidding that these things are exploding across universities, that we were one of the first top business schools four years back to start it. And you know, at the time, you keep an eye out who your competition is to just make sure that, that there's nothing obvious you're missing. It's gotten to the point that it is difficult for us to do that, <laughs> given the number of programs that start every year. And it makes sense because what's, what's great about these programs is it's been, if you think about the history of business education, it's been probably some decades since there has been kind of a shift in, you know, here's a whole new set of skills that is new. Um, you know, obviously, in the in the 80s, it was a lot around business strategy and how do we incorporate that? Then you move towards lean. And then it was kind of this pause of, well, we kind of know what's going on. But then the data side hit and there were kind of two pieces that, that came together at the same time. One is just the amount of data with everything going digital just exploded. But the other side of that is that hardware got really, really cheap. And so where before doing some of these analyses, you'd have to you know, pay a huge amount to get your own server. In an afternoon now, you can go and buy something on you know, AWS, rent it out, and poof, you're suddenly in the data science sphere. So it's really neat to be able to be part of the development of a program that in some ways is just blue space that we can just kind of say, what do we want to, what do we want to build here? What do we want to design here? Um, in terms of the classes, in terms of the co-curriculars, in terms of how we position it, that has been a really fulfilling experience. So where does the world go? And I know you don't have a crystal ball, but where does the world go with all this data? Because if it's like growing exponentially, right. And there's just more and more and more information. I mean, eventually does it get more micro? Like, do people start to, you know, ignore the vast amount of data that's out there and they, they really start focusing on what's most relevant to them? Or do we just create these supercomputers that can process all this data and, and help us like interpret, you know, what it is? But talk to me about that because I wonder about that oftentimes because there's just so much information out there and so many voices and, and so many data points. So that's a great question, which normally means I have an answer. So going along with that, in terms of where we go, it's we're going to go down the hype curve before we start coming back up it. You know, generally with a hype curve of any new technology, the idea is that in the very beginning, it's mostly hype. And there's huge amounts of hype. And what's actually being done is much more modest and much more incremental. Then people realize that. And then the hype curve dies down and we really start seeing this incremental improvement really starts being understood and, and put throughout the organization. And then you get to a point where, okay, now this is a mature technology. We know how it works. It feels like 
we are close to the peak of the hype curve when it comes to data and when it comes to AI. What it won't ever become is the theory of everything. You know, the Terminator coming through, the Skynet figuring out exactly what's going on. It's not that. Partially because, and I think this is important for people to realize when thinking about data, looking at data is always using the past to predict the future. And the implication is that the environment of the future will remain the same as the past. The whole idea of creating new strategies, thinking about going into new markets, thinking about going into developing new products, is that the future is unknown, which means, yeah, you can get educated and you can get a better understanding in terms of market intel, but it's not like you, you can use these really you know, high-value uh, data techniques. And so there's always going to be the need for creativity. There's always going to be the need for the human interaction. There's always going to be the need for thinking of what's next. But where data is going is a few dimensions. One is straight operational. People are now really understanding how data can automate a lot of tasks that were previously just this manual, redundant, very costly in terms of labor costs. And you can just automate most of those and then have your people really do the value add work that you know, computers can't do. In terms of optimization, you, know, you see it with you know, Amazon's a great example. They have so much intelligence in their logistics. You just see how, how the cost savings comes in. So we're seeing that piece. And then we are also seeing data as both a product, but then data also as a competitive advantage. In terms of data as a product, a lot of companies are realizing now that by having insights into how customers behave and having insights into when products fail and having insights into understanding what fraud looks like in a certain context, they can actually make that into a product and sell to other people and basically use their insights to give to other people in the same way you would use a subject matter expert. That's one area that it's going into. But the other area besides it just being a product is people are beginning to recognize that one of the barriers to entry you can throw up is if you get the information first, and if you are actually able to know your customers better and target your customers better first, you can actually get competitive advantage, such as someone entering the market would have these really large barriers to entry. I think that remains to be fully researched. I think it is just beginning to be incorporated into some of the standard versions of strategic analyses. And that's where I think as we develop leaders who understand this world better, you're going to start seeing that being intentionally designed more than it is today. I absolutely agree. And and there's so much to unpack there. And, um, <laughs> and, and I have a lot more questions for you, but I, I want to touch on something before moving on to these other things and diving deeper into your response. Because you said something about the future being unknown. Before we switch into the business side, I, I want to talk a little bit about your students. Because I went through the MBA program with you and the world was a lot different just <laughs> a few years ago, right? When I went through the program. Uh-huh. So here I am, I'm thinking like as students going into these MBA programs and they're, they're learning things, but the world is changing so rapidly. The future is so unknown, right? There's new programs like this program that you're heading up and that, that never even existed in the past. So what do you see students really struggling with today that surprises you? So I've been thinking about this lately and it's less that it surprises me and more that I think it's more of an issue now than people realize, especially people in an older generation. Um, and it's particularly what students are struggling with is how how many choices they have in their career and the fact that they get to decide. They get to decide not only what their career looks like, but they also get to decide what their goals even are. Is it money? Is it prestige? Is it being happy at home? Is it just enough money to support a certain lifestyle? They get to decide. And I think there's been a shift in the last 40 years in the business world that is making this more of an issue. And, and I think we're seeing it a lot more. You know, think about the jobs in the 50s and 60s. You could probably, in 20 d- different job descriptions, pretty much get 80 or 90% of the actual functional work in sure. industry. Like every company was, you know, it was pretty much blue chip companies, you know, huge names. Uh, you did not have a very fast product cycle. You did not have much diversity in terms of the products. In fact, even the idea of a product manager, which is just you know, blown up in the last 20 years. I don't know that it existed really 40, 50 years ago. And so what that means is that 40 or 50 years ago, there was kind of the blessing and the curse of you didn't have that many choices. 
well, that, that can actually make life easier. It's like, okay, I can, I can be an engineer. I can be a salesperson. I can be, all right, th- these are the known things. And then you just optimize within that, within that set. Sure. And it's kind of easy and the path is known. You know, if you want to go into you know, engineering, get an engineering degree, then you work for an engineering company and that's what you do. When the past 40 years, the number of jobs, what the jobs do, especially with the digital explosion, it just doesn't look the same. You pretty much name the mix of functions and a job exists nowadays that hits the mark. On top of that, just look at the, the number of names of small companies and startups that have a chief of blank. And you will find all these different roles. And so unfortunately, I don't think we are doing enough to help our students at, at every age understand they get to choose. And part of what that, what that means is that they need to decide what's important to them. They need to decide really what's fulfilling for them. And then they need to start understanding what jobs are out there. And I just think a lot of you know our parents' generation and some of our generation doesn't know that. And so we have so many people, so many students that come through thinking that there's a very linear path. You know, if in middle school I get good enough grades, I will be in the honors classes in high school, good enough grades, AP classes, good enough, you know, and, and it keeps going. And then they get to a job that they're not fulfilled in. And they don't really know how they got there. And when you ask, you know, when did you actually decide? There's this realization that never happened. And so we're seeing definitely with our one-year students, but, you know, a common thread of our MBA students is getting there and not really knowing what's next. They just know they're not fulfilled right now. Sure. And really helping them understand and empowering them. It's difficult, but it's empowering to realize, no, 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 these are all the things you get to decide. I think that's the thing that, that our, our students are struggling with because they don't have anyone ahead of them that's had to do this. And they don't, you know, it, it is rare to be able to find a mentor that has kind of bridged these multiple worlds and said, no, 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 here's how you look for, you know, this random job you're looking for. And, and I think that's something that we're probably still a generation away, you know, especially when, when you look at, you know, some of the, the gig economy kind of crafting an entire career out of different gigs. I think we're probably still a generation away from being able to actually really help younger people and guide them into finding their own passion in their own way. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Well, and I think that's very important to understand. I think that's a great point. And don't you think it's a little bit about helping them to trust their decision-making process and like have confidence in that? Because, you know, I agree. Like if, if I'm sitting here to go buy a product, right? Say I'm going to like sign up for a SaaS product or something. You know, they've gotten really smart to limit the the options where it's like you could get option A or B, or sometimes it's A, B or C. But can you imagine if it's like you could get options A through Z, I mean, it would be so paralyzing. I probably wouldn't even make a buying decision, let alone a career decision. It's like, how do you instill that confidence in somebody or, or say, hey, look, you know, trust your decision-making process. The future is going to be okay. Like you may make a, a bad decision and take the wrong job, but it's not a, the end of the world. Life is not linear. It's super messy. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, all this stuff too, right? My life has definitely not been linear. It's been really crazy and radical in a lot of ways. So like, how do you do that? Yes, I have. And I stole this phrase from somebody else. And I apologize, I cannot properly cite them because I don't remember their name. But yeah, no, my career has been a drunken walk. I've ended up someplace it's worked out, but I can't really tell you how I got there. And no, this was never the long term intent. But that feel of helping them trust their decisions. That's the one that's so hard. Because unfortunately, our education system not just in the West, almost almost around the world, does not reward exploration and does not reward failure. It doesn't allow for, give it a shot. Maybe you won't be the best, but maybe you'll like it. It doesn't really allow for that. It, there's so much pressure almost from day one to reverse engineer where you want to go. Well, if you want to go to a top undergrad, you have to do this in high school, which means you have to do this in middle school. And that is something that unfortunately has really started provoking kind of an anxiety response in students 
that the career is almost like a test. And if you do A and pass, you'll get to B. And if you pass, you'll get to C. And if you pass, you'll get to D. And then they get to the career and they realize that's out the window. Sure. Like that doesn't exist anymore. And so now they're in a world where you, you kind of need to balance things. I found students that, that I've kind of mentored through this. And literally just yesterday, I had a conversation with, with someone that I, I just met, the student. And I actually told her, you know, you didn't ask for this life advice, but you really need to believe in yourself more. That they're, they're believing your judgment more. Sure. That there were a few times that she said, well, I did this because one other person said, a mentor said, do it this way. I'm like, does that make any sense? <laughs> like, you need to have that. And I think that it is difficult in single serving doses to change that. But the more times the seeds are planted and the more times that people see individuals whose paths are not linear, that can not only speak to the fact that, trust me, it's not the, the worst case scenario is not what you think it is. It, it's not. Sure. But also hear the joy of exploration. Yeah, no, that seemed fun. So I tried that. And hey, it worked out. And realize that can be an intelligent, responsible path if done, you know, with a lower level of thoughtfulness. You know, if you just say, you know what I want to do, play guitar under a bridge and say, well, that might not be responsible. But if it's, (laughs) look, I want to go into the startup world. And what I'm thinking is I have enough runway that I could try this for two years, see if it works out. You know, this is where I need to be after two years, then do that. Or, you know, I want to try this type of role. I'm going to take a step back in order to take a step forward. Well, try it. And I think the more they see that, um, one one thing that I found resonates with students is when I tell them, I can craft a narrative of my career that looks really intentional and impressive. And none of that's true. (laughs) It's it's just not. You know, it's working hard. It's being being seen so that when opportunities come up, you know, people think of me. It's, It's just putting myself out there to some degree and then leaning into the unknown. But it it is very difficult to unravel that with years of no, 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 you have to, I don't know, go to clarinet practice because that'll look good on a resume. That is a difficult thing to disentangle. And that is a challenge we have. And also a challenge when we look at some of the anxiety levels we see um, with our students. I mean, there's so much social pressure there. You go to a great school and you know, your classmates are going to follow up at some point and say, Hey, so how's the job going? And last thing you want to do is say, well, you know, I, I went over here and took this job and failed or the business, (laughs) you know, didn't last more than two months or whatever it is, because somehow we tie like our identity to the choices that we make or the careers that we have. I mean, that's, that's a tough cycle to break, right? It is. Yes. And all, you know, so much of that is built, you know, in our zero to 18 years. And, you know, you, you're not talking about something that disappears overnight. It's, it's generally reinforced. You know, we see some domains where at least the social pressure at an adult level is significantly reduced. You know, when you look at the startup culture there in, in certain startup cultures, there is actually a pride of doing impulsive things, even, even if it's not always warranted, <laughs> but still sure. it can exist there. But in general, it's no, if how you were raised basically reinforced this, no, there's a way to do things. There's a way to do things. It's the path to do things. Then that's just the view in, in the kind of the anxiety response you have and disentangling that it can be one of the most frightening things in the world um, because the fear is just part of you. You know, your limbic system is just this is what you have been conditioned to do. And it takes a lot to start getting through that. And it can be intentionally, but it can also just be the more that people with these non-traditional backgrounds talk about it. And not just talk about it. Uh, unfortunately, a, a lot of people that, that I interview, one of the things I like to do is, is really push them to what are all the ways that you were afraid and that this didn't work? Because a lot of interviews that we see, you, you look at someone and everything looks like they were successful. And then the fear is, well, sure, if I'm as, as clever and as, and as uh, accepting of risk and all these things, where when you actually dig into it, most people, it's like, oh, yeah, I got lucky. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I, I tried this and we almost failed four times and we were a month away from failing and it was really hard on my family. And, and once they hear that, then they see, no, wait a minute. These are just normal people like me that can kind of carve their own path. And again, the worst outcome is not what people's brains are fearing you know, when you get right down to it. No, it's not. Sure. It's, it's you have to take a step back again before you move back forward. But the payoffs can be huge in terms of finding fulfillment and actually finding that balance between who you are and what you do. 
Yeah, exactly. And so what you're saying is that I can't use data analytics to make all the decisions for me in the future and just to figure out this perfect life for me. <laughs> Way to pull that back to data, data yeah. analytics. Very nice. That is that not nice true? Thing. Is that is no. that not the promise of data analytics to just make all of our decisions for us and that, just make completely, everything perfect? Completely right. I don't know if you did the same thing that I did when I was a kid where, I don't know, in middle school sometime, they gave me this test that then told me some careers that I could do. Sure. Yeah, I think one of mine was Undertaker. <laughs> so take that for whatever you will. That was one of mine. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. That one of the things that I tell my students, I actually think a, a good example of this, we will oftentimes, there is the curse of optimization that as part of this, there's a test, A goes to B, B goes to C. Students and, and just the younger people will think that there is a right answer. And what I tell them is, here's what you're missing. So let's say I'm talking to a 25-year-old. I say, think of yourself when you were at 20. Is there any world at 20 that you would envisioned you are where you are right now? Like, Whatever that means, is there any world at 20 that this is what you predicted? And every time the answer is not even close. I'm like, exactly. When you're 30, it's going to be just as foreign to you, which means even if you make a decision right now that is optimized for 25-year-old you, you have no idea what 30-year-old you, you have no idea what their optimization function is going to be. Sure. Done. So anytime you're talking about a future that is changing, there is a certain amount of data that is responsible and necessary to make an informed decision, but it can only go so far. And you can only predict if you're trying to do true, true prediction in the data science sense of the word, you can only predict based on what you've seen in the past. Sure. Um, any prediction based on 2019 data was horribly wrong in 2020. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> horribly wrong. All of it was broken. And, and that's the idea. Yeah. And, and I think that's a good point. And that's why I talk with clients and, and I tell them, hey, look, we're not about prediction strategy because you know I can't go out to companies and you know pull this data and have all these proprietary insights and say, hey, based on this information, you should definitely go down option B, right? That's where you're going to maximize shareholder value and your cash flow and everything else because you just you just can't do that. So instead it's about to me, strategy and, and using data is about creating these patterns, creating a system to make strategic decisions, to go out there and to execute rather than trying to predict the future. What are your thoughts on that? And I, I think that's an appropriate way to think about it, that data can be your strategy if that's the product. Data can help with the tactical side of strategy. In fact, data will almost always, when you're talking about the execution side of it, it can come in, but it's not a one size fits all. And it's certainly not a theory of everything that, sure. you know, in, in the moment it becomes a theory of everything, none of us have jobs, which, yeah. which, which, which will be kind of a disappointment. So uh, the way you're thinking about it is correct. And when you were talking about how the pieces all fit together, just because of the literal mathematical complexity, you know, the exponential growth problem of systems of things you're putting in place, you almost can't use that level. It's almost the gap between microeconomics and macroeconomics. That gap hasn't actually been bridged yet. You can either look at it from this 20,000 foot lens, or you can look at it at the 5,000 foot lens. Right. If you try to connect them, it just gets way too complex, way too quickly. And so where I actually think and why it's exciting to be in this realm is how that's being incorporated is being figured out literally as we speak. In some cases, it is, okay, we have our strategy. We've now been able, you know, if you think something like the strategy map or any kind of tactical operational approach you're using, we have an idea of what we need to achieve in three months, one year, two years, three years to achieve this. Sure. Well, let's actually aggregate the data. Let's look at the data to see if we are achieving that. Great. It can also be less if once you're in business for a while, we are going to understand our customers better. In fact, we can start making predictions that, you know, one that's been around for one of the longest areas analytics has been used in the marketing world. You know, we kind of know which customers will churn for what reasons. We kind of know what ads will work better with different customers. Well, great. That means that as you're thinking about your option set of what you can deliver and how you can deliver it, is just expanded because you have a tool you didn't have before. It's not everything. You know, having a hammer doesn't suddenly fix all your problems in the construction world. Sure. But if you didn't have a hammer before, 
it changes everything. And where I think the change is, is up until now, there's been a junkyard full of old boards and nails and someone came up with a hammer and people look around and go, what can I build with what I have lying around? It's an awful shape that wasn't, that wasn't made for a hammer, which is the, we have this data everywhere, this awful data that's you know not connected at all. Hey, what can we do with it? And I think where we're going to see it moving to is, no, 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 don't just start with what you have. Start with an empty field and say, if we know we have a hammer, what should we bring here? What, what should we actually put into place here? What data should we gather? What products should we use? What products should we have, uh, produce now? In some ways, thinking of it as a lost leader, if we actually get this out now, and if we could get the data, could we actually monetize that data, either internally in, in terms of better targeting or by actually selling the insights? It's yeah. that type of, of world where now that leaders are beginning to understand this and it's still just in, in its infancy, they can start truly from a strategic point of view asking how, how they can use it when they get to design everything. Let's talk about that a little bit more. So I, I remember for Christmas one year, I think it's my mom, she bought me the Ancestry.com $99 <laughs> DNA test, right? <laughs> And I remember doing it and then, you know, I got my report back and it was like, you know, you're this percent, this, this percent, that, right. And it had this colorful map and it's like, oh, that, you know, that's kind of interesting. Right. So basically I'm from everywhere. Um, so it's an interesting thing, interesting exercise. And, you know, and I think I purchased a few as gifts and then last year. So in December of last year, Blackstone, uh, the, the world's largest or one of the world's largest private equity firms announced that they were buying ancestry.com and they bought them for an equity value of $4.7 billion. So my question to you is, you know, when I think about this, you know, are they buying this company because they have, you know, this data set, right? I mean, they basically have DNA on <laughs> yes, they do. how many millions of people, right? So are they buying it because they think the $99 cute gift, you know, the DNA test is a uh, great, or is that just the lost leader product or the front running product to capture the data that's more valuable? Is data the gold of the future? Like, like people say it is, um, is that the gold rush data or is it too early to tell how this all pans out? No so either. I, I can't answer that question specifically without knowing what they intend. But as you're well aware from my class, I tend to be very skeptical of acquisitions, especially when it's just kind of a cram it into your portfolio and hope that magic happens. You know, when the, when the synergy unicorn rises from the ashes and suddenly make companies that don't go together fit. So it does beg the question, how are they going to add value above the acquisition premium? that they sure. pay for it. You know, does it feel like ancestry.com is going to become, you know, the next big thing? No, I'm pretty sure we're past that wave. <laughs> I'm sure. pretty sure it's not the, the hot, uh, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's not the, the hot uh, holiday item uh, anymore. And so then it could be, is it the data? Now, the question I would have, the, the, the very large question is, what did users sign when they actually sent in their ancestry.com? What are the legal ways that that data can be used? Uh, because sure. my recollection, because I did it as well, and Guess what? I learned what I knew. <laughs> oh, right. My uncle's from Italy, or excuse me, my grandfather's from Italy. Wow, I'm a quarter Italian. Who guessed it? Yeah, the question is what they can use it for. Now, if legally they can use it for specific things and ethically, and that's a whole world that the good news is that it's actually being talked about more than you might expect. The bad news is there's a lot of really difficult ethical questions. For instance, how you use someone's DNA information. That's the question. And have they really thought through that? And, and have they, you know, is it, well, we just hope to have this data and we will figure out what to do with it in the future. Well, that's like saying, I'd like to sell you a junkyard full of stuff. And there's got to be some value in there, right? And you're smart enough that you can figure out how to get some value by just kind of sifting through this. Well, Maybe, but if you actually say, hey, we'd like to sell you an old, uh, you know, an old classic auto junkyard and you go perfect because my skill set is taking old auto, you know, beautiful classic cars, but now they're really rusty, rehabbing them and making a fortune. Well, that's the perfect junkyard for you to buy sure. and, and you should pay the premium. And so that, that is the question and that's the hype piece. I think the heart of that is how much of it is hype. I hear all the time and then AI will do blank. And it's like, that's not the way these, <laughs> that's not the way the data science works. That's not the way that it should be used. It, it's not just this magic oracle on the mountain that's going to tell us what to do. In some ways, I think Google has actually worked people's uh, understanding of, of what data can do because Google is 
frighteningly close to that oracle on the mountain <laughs> that asks <laughs> anything. But when you actually understand how it works and understand the algorithm and how much data they've thrown at it, then it makes sense, but they can still only answer specific things. If instead you ask what's going to happen a year from now, can't answer it. Yeah. And so that understanding, uh, th this is the piece where business leaders need to upskill at least to the level of understanding what these tools can do. They don't need to know how to do them. They don't need to know how to code. They don't need to know the statistical properties, but they need to know what they can do. Because then again, once you know what a hammer does, then you can start thinking, oh my goodness, there's so many places I could use this that fits within my strategy, or I can actually expand my strategy to incorporate this. You know, when you think about digital transformation, that's what it's supposed to be. What sure. it normally is, is we're going to have a, a, you know, a web storefront and now we're a digital company. It's like, yeah, but you know, you sell chainsaws. It's yeah. maybe digital is the way to go there, but maybe not. Yeah, exactly. So, and it's interesting that, you know, looking at data as a product, right. And looking at data as a competitive advantage. And when I think about a competitive advantage, what that means to me, it means, okay, you could either get a price premium, right. You could either have some cost capital efficiency, or you have a way to grow in a scalable manner. And that's where a lot of advantages come from. And so what's your thought on data with creating a competitive advantage? Is that still hype? Or do you think data can really help organizations to you know, out-compete in the marketplace? I actually think this is the one place where it's under hype. When I said earlier that I think this is still being developed, how this incorporates into some of the traditional strategy models. So if you think about Porter's Five Forces, for instance, nowhere in there is information as a competitive advantage. Sure. And it's now the point that information absolutely can be a competitive advantage. Literally having the information and knowing what to do with it. Different ways that it can be. Number one, there is absolutely the network and scale effects that we know are barriers to entry in the, in the physical world. That absolutely, that, that is the heart of the information economy. That if you get out there first and you get the data first, as your data gets bigger and bigger, your ability to segment, your ability to predict, your ability to do all sorts of things gets better. Well, if I'm a new entrant and I'm facing somebody that pretty much knows, you know, go to the go to the knife edge of this, I pretty much know who this new competitor is going to target. I have a pretty good idea of what they're going to price at. I pretty much know who my customers are that I don't care if they go to them and I do care. Therefore, I'm going to send them an email today and let them know that I'm giving them a discount. And if I know that, if I know that I'm going up against that, I do not want to go into that market. And so I'm going to have to start thinking about, well, how could I either get the same level of data or how much am I willing to bleed before I just have the data in-house before I can get there? And so I think you're seeing, and I like the example you gave before about acquiring ancestry, I think that there's, there is hype in the acquisitions that are happening when people are just saying, we're acquiring them because of the data. You know, the, the natural question is, but how are you going to use it? Like, you really have to have some idea of how the competitive advantage is going to get there. But I think in terms of the general, you know, how we teach our MBA students, I don't think this is talked about nearly enough uh, because most of our MBA students, you know, they don't have a good idea of what is data science even? What are the types of questions it can answer? And where could it throw up those barriers to entry that could make it really difficult for someone to enter a market? You know, I could, I can, you know, I've named some of them, but I think some of them remain to be seen. Sure. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's an excellent point and, and a great response because, I mean, I agree. I, I think this is an untapped area for businesses to really create a competitive advantage and, and even segment themselves um, in a way where they create this like moat around them and they, they create this advantage that is actually a true advantage out there. Yeah. And the, and the one key to that is that it does have to be intentional is, is, you know, anyone that's taken my strategy class knows that you know, there's a synergy unicorn, but then in reality there's linkages and what a linkage is, that's how you connect two different machines. It's intentional, it's design, and it makes sure that the force gets multiplied. You know, going back to my engineering roots, sure. that's what we're talking about. Well, same thing with data. You can't just acquire someone's data and just hope that the magical, you know, data phoenix rises from that and suddenly gives you all the insights you were hoping for. No, you have to really understand well, what's the data we're getting. How clean is the data? How trustworthy is the data? What specific things could we use it for? What do we need to augment it with? And with that, you can start thinking, well, wait a minute. If we take their data about operations and if we take our data about customers, 
could we possibly put those together in a very specific way to not just do targeted outreach, but actually do targeted product development? Could we act, and I'm just giving an example, could we actually customize the product we are offering different customers pretty much on the fly? And the answer is, for instance, yeah, you could. Um, that That is one way that you could do this, but that's, you know, there's so many ways, but it, but it does have to be intentional. And that intentionality requires someone that at least understands something about how data works and what value you can pull out of it. And, and, and more importantly, what you can't, because so much of it is hype. I like that idea about um, just being intentional with the data and acting, you know, in a strategic way with it. So we talked about data as a, a lever. Okay. Let's go more broad. So let's go macro here about business being a lever. A few years ago, I was sitting on a plane and I was thinking about life and what I wanted to do and why I'm so passionate about what I do. And really, you know, what came to my mind is that, you know, in this world, there's, there's people and some people, they have this gift with their hands, right? And they could perform surgeries or they can create art or whatever it is. Some people, they're, they're really good at athletics or whatever it is. For me, I love business. And I always say this, I love business like people love football, right? Like I, I love business. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> like I, I'm a nerd like that, right? Like I'll read a business book when I'm on vacation, like in Mexico, I'm the only guy in the, the beach with the highlighter, you know, reading a business book. But they I got love like business. Chicken, wing, chicken wing's a big foam finger, just reading your business book. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So that, that's me because- I feel like, and it's not just business for like the capital upside, right? Of making a bunch of money, but it, instead it's this lever that can change people's lives. It can change the world. Like there's, there's so much potential to use business in an impactful way. I want to hear your perspective on this about how you view business. Do you view it as a, a lever to change lives and to change the world and to change communities and all that? What's your perspective on it? Because obviously you have some passion. I mean, you you teach this stuff, you live this stuff, <laughs> I mean, you breathe this stuff, right? I do indeed. There is a philosophical debate that I will sidestep on whether that is an appropriate role for business. And, and you know, it's obvious to understand what both sides of, of, of that's going to be. Um, more and more research has been done. Okay, I'll, I'll dip into it quickly, then I'll sidestep it. Okay. More and more research has been done in the last 10 to 20 years that actually indicates, no, in a lot of scenarios, actually your business with some kind of more mission-driven focus in some ways that has to be aligned with your strategy, that can actually be good for you, both from in terms of employee retention, in terms of lower salaries, because people feel more fulfilled, in terms of a lot of different ways. But that said, there's still a philosophical, you know, is it is a business, does it exist for shareholder value? Does it exist for this larger view of shareholders and what that means? And I'm going to sidestep that because in some ways, I think it doesn't matter. And specifically in the sense that it is very difficult to force businesses to, you know, quote, do the right thing. That short of significant societal pressure or government regulation, which tends to be, you know, at least in America, that's, that's not something politically that's feasible really anytime soon. Short of that, it, it's hard. So, you know, if you're talking about a philosophical debate that has no practical, you know, practical implementation, who cares? But what has one of the things that excites me most about what's happened with business in the last 20 years is that societal pressure has, has kind of changed and it's changed less on the businesses should do this, although that that's definitely there. And it's strongly there. It's just how much how much that actually changes things. I'm still a little bit skeptical about. Normally, it means that there'll be some statement that's made. They'll navigate through the crisis and then back to business as usual the next day. You know, obviously not all companies, but a lot of companies. That's what it feels like. Sure. But we're seeing what we're really seeing is employees, and not just employees at the lower levels. Employees all the way through up into leadership realizing it's not their life or work. It's their life and work. And as a manager, you need to manage the whole human of your employees, their needs. They have needs outside of work. They have passions that they want to pursue. A good manager will not just accept those, but embrace those. And I think more and more employees are feeling, and this is one I actually do think that the younger generation is embracing it even more, is embracing the idea that once they kind of break out of it has to just be one way and realize that's not the way it is anymore of really kind of demanding you have to see me as my whole self mm-hmm. and part of what that means is if my whole self feels passionately about certain things i don't want to work for a company that doesn't share those values 
And so I am going to I'm going to select into areas, which means businesses can't ignore this anymore. That not taking a stance is now a stance because as an employee, I get to choose. Do I want to go somewhere that is actually aligned with with what I've what I find fulfilling, what I find morally important, whatever that looks like? Or do I want to go work for someone that doesn't care and is just profit driven? And more and more, I think we're seeing people say, you know what? How much would I be willing to pay every year to actually love the company I work for and to actually be happy here and to be around like-minded people? And they say, I'd actually be willing to pay quite a bit. And so we're seeing that. And so business as this, this mechanism for good, however you define it, the potential has always been there. You know, the fact is there is almost nothing that couldn't be achieved if businesses just said, that's the way it's going to be. Sure. You know, period, you know, take something that has been you know heavily politicized in the last year, wearing masks. Mm-hmm. I'm again sidestepping any of any of the debates on that. But sure. the fact is, if every business in America said you can't come in without a mask, you've basically solved that problem. Sure. <laughs> you know, right. businesses are everywhere. Businesses are the part of the, just the fabric of everyone's existence. There is huge capacity for change. What I'm most excited about is at all levels, and again, including leadership, people are realizing that. They need to bring their full authentic selves. That's how they will be better employees. That's how they'll actually be better for the companies, but that's how they will actually find happiness. And and having that begin to be the conversation and, and companies realizing that they have to support that really makes me excited and optimistic for the promise that the business has always had really being amplified in the next 10 to 20 years in terms of what you start seeing. I mean, do you think that could be scary or, I mean, create anxiety for, let's look at it from both sides. I mean, the leadership side, let's say it's, you know, very traditional type leadership. I'm not talking about like traditional and and values or whatever, but they're just, they're used to one way of doing things, right? Over the last 20 years, we've always done it this way. Now all of a sudden you're saying my employees, they get to just come in and have all these opinions and assert themselves in certain ways. And that, that could be scary, right? From the employee side, you know, you kind of have to like flip your card over and and expose yourself by being vulnerable and like showing up as your whole authentic self too. So there's a little bit of vulnerability there too. So like how do businesses and leaders like navigate that, right? Because it it seems like such a massive shift and it's exponentially accelerated over the last few years. Yes to everything you said, like the way you said it, the everything you said, I I agree with exactly. Um, It can be very scary. One of the things that leaders need to understand, even traditional leaders, maybe they've been really good at strategy. And in particular, not just the five-year strategy or the three-year strategy of the way the world is now. Maybe they've even been good at a 20-year strategy of having these waves of innovation and and waves of what the next new product is so that they never dip down too low as one wave drops down. Maybe they've been great at that. And if they are, what that means is they've been very agile as it comes to consumer needs. If they don't recognize that your employee base is just another type of person that you need to attract to your firm and that the world is changing. It's the exact same as a strategic leader that says, yeah, you know what? Take someone in the auto industry. I know what people like. They like station wagons and wood panels that really have that really deep guttural engine sound. (laughs) It's like, well, I don't, I don't know that that's right anymore. (laughs) that, that, That doesn't seem correct. It's the same thing. So people can be afraid, but good leaders, especially good strategic leaders, recognize that the fear is where the opportunity is. Like th- yeah. that uncertainty is the world you live in. If you're not comfortable with an uncertain future, you should not be in the strategic position. You need to be in the sure. tactical position. But if you're in that strategic position, you need to view this as, as, you know, yeah, there's some scary parts. Yeah, you can fail. But yeah, there's also potentially opportunity in there. Take the exact example you gave. Find me a company, an existing company, whose workforce clearly seems not quite aligned with what the company is doing. I could easily start up a new company, be the exact same company, and just say, I'm going to create a culture that really supports the employees. How many of those employees are going to come to my company with all their information, with all their knowledge, with all their processes, with all their connections? And suddenly they are in a world where they feel fully supported. And I actually have a strategic advantage because I didn't just craft my company to align with client needs and customer needs. I actually crafted my customer to align with my employee needs. Yeah. And so when you're talking about strategy, most people, you know, even if you think of something like the, the strategy map or the balanced scorecard, 
you know, that learning and development on that lower level that kind of bleeds into everything else. A lot of times it is viewed as kind of this tactical lower level. Well, we need this to be, you know, to achieve our strategic goals. Well, this is where I think they're, they're not a transformation of thinking, but an augmentation of strategic thinking. It can actually be part of your strategic position. And this is, this is where that research has been in the last 10 to 20 years is no, you can actually get a competitive advantage by aligning your company to what your employees want and need in the same way you, w- you would for customers. And suddenly you're going to get better retention. You're going to get happier, happier employees. They are going to be just naturally more aligned with your strategy. And this is where historically you hear people talking about culture and you know, culture eats strategy for business. Sure. This, is, this is the more formal way of saying that is no, no, no. Yeah. If you have a bunch of unhappy employees, sure. Nothing works. But beyond that, you can actually fully align it with your strategy. And, and, and that again, not making a choice is a choice. And that's the thing that's changed 10 years ago. It was the status quo. And and someone that didn't do this would be kind of viewed as, well, that's weird. Not so much anymore that you kind of have to decide what it is you want your company to be and to stand for um, in a way that's aligned with your strategy. Yeah. And, and and that has to be part of the bigger picture. And, and that's a great response. And I, and I think that's so true. I, I mean, with your strategy, you're trying to figure out how to sell products to your customers. And with your strategy, you're trying to figure out how to sell your purpose and your culture to your employees, right? So you're you're selling to both sides. And, and I like how you articulated that. So let me just wrap up with this, this question here. And it's kind of a statement, observation, however you want to say it. But a couple of weeks ago, I was up in the mountains and I had the opportunity to go skiing. That's the, the advantage of living in Denver. And one of um, one of my classmates, right, who uh, was in your program as well, we were talking on the the chairlift, and and I said, you know what, the greatest thing about the MBA program at, at Fuqua was, I can't tell you what I learned in operations class. I mean, there, there's things that I learned, right? Like, but I can't like tell you all the formulas and I can't tell you how to you know read a certain graph or I mean some of the things I just kind of forgot, right? But the biggest thing that I learned was empathy. And when I started traveling around, right. And I, and to your point, tying back in our previous conversation, like going out there and like experimenting, like trying new things, not being afraid to fail, like seeing new cultures, interacting with different people from different backgrounds with all this like diversity, it really opened my eyes. And, and that's why I love traveling so much is because it makes me a more empathetic person. Now, trust me, I got, I got a long way to go. I'm not saying I'm perfect <laughs> with this, but I think as a strategic leader into like, to your point and to tie all this together, right? Like you could have all the data at your fingertips. You could have all this experience in the world, but if you don't have that empathy towards people, if you don't allow people to be their authentic self, to be vulnerable around you. And if you can't do that, i I think my opinion is you're really going to struggle in the workplace, in your professional life, in your personal life. I mean, in so many facets of life. What, what's your response to that? Strongly agree with the caveat that there are, <laughs> there are some sociopaths that can end up doing very, very well. <laughs> so you're saying I could do well? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> but for the most part, I have found that being vulnerable, um, allowing my employees to be their authentic selves, not just allowing it, encouraging it always ends up better, that I'm more fulfilled, they're more fulfilled. I think your point on traveling is very correct. For those that view empathy as, as something that's a little bit more squishy, um, that, that think of empathy as, you know, I have to care about somebody else that maybe I don't care about, which, yeah, well, there's obviously a moral stance to say, well, no, that's probably a good place to be. But ignoring that fact, right. I, I can actually generally distill this down to an even more functional piece. And and when you're talking about cross-cultural communication, I love teaching that topic because the idea behind it, really distilling it down and getting rid of a lot of nuance that that should be there. But the distilling it down to the same words mean different things to different people, depending on how they were raised. The whole point of communication is getting what's in my brain through words into your brain, because I can't do a direct mind map, right? Well, unfortunately, even if we're both speaking English, that can be very different. And you might say, well, how's that work? Simple. Think someone from, you know, like Jersey Shore and put them in you know, deep South Alabama. Sure. <laughs> and have them talk <laughs> and, and see if they're, yeah, they're both speaking English. <laughs> that is true. But when one of them says, bless your heart, and the other one doesn't realize that they just got offended worse than they've ever been offended in their life, they're not really speaking the same language. 
And so without empathy, what ends up happening is your lens of processing everything you assume is what everybody else has because you never work to really understand them. And so you assume that if you hear information in a certain way and it causes you to react a certain way, your assumption is they meant that. They intended that. And on the flip side, if I didn't intend it and I tell them and they got offended, well, that's not my fault. That's their fault. Because somehow without realizing, no, 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 everyone's conditioning is different. You know, an example I give, in fact, it leads to, to you asked me before the interview, what do I like to be called? You know, Jeremy, Jay. The reason I don't go by Jeremy is that growing up, whenever my parents used my full name, I was getting yelled at. And so whenever I hear Jeremy, I actually cringe. I actually get this anxiety response, fully limbic system, fully autonomous, can't control it. Where once people started calling me Jay, it was just a different thing. And so the word Jeremy, which is my name. (laughs) And when I formally introduced myself, I'm Jeremy Petranka, but it means something to me just because of how I was raised. And that's the simplest example. And so the more you interact with people around the world, the more you realize how we're conditioned is very different. Some people argument, like really get into what looks like a heated argument is just a method of finding truth. And the minute the argument's over, there's no hard feelings. They're like, no, that was fun. Like that. We just, we just, you know, had a boxing match and we were, you know, yeah, it looked like, but no, we hug afterwards. And then there's some cultures that if you did that, you have basically said you are dead to me. Sure. You do not respect me. Same language. And so even if you want to make it on a strictly functional argument, ignoring the ethical considerations, ignoring the moral considerations that, you know, different people can have different views of that from a strictly functional standpoint. If you don't understand that, that even if you're talking the same language, different words, different physical gestures, different everything can actually be putting different mental responses into people you're talking to. I don't know how you can claim to be a good leader, but certainly not a leader that's willing to do what's necessary to make sure your constituents are successful because that's on the leader. The leader needs to needs to recognize, okay, maybe let me see what works here. Let me see what doesn't. And I think a heart of that that we touched on before is vulnerability that, you know what, I'm going to get it wrong sometimes. And when that happens, I'm going to apologize, but darn it, I'm going to try because I can't just do it my way and think that it's going to, you know, magically you're going to hear it the same way. I'm going to try, but I'm also going to be willing to be wrong. Well, and I think there's definitely power in that. And I mean, you exemplified that very well throughout the program. I mean, you could draw the whole entire cohort to show up to an optional classroom discussion in a foreign country uh, late at night. And and I think that vulnerability <laughs> that you show is uh, powerful. So um, no, you're a great example, but I really appreciate having you on the show today, Jay, because I think you have so many different perspectives and you have so much like knowledge and the way that you could tie everything together when it comes to strategy, to data analytics, to just like life, right? Like life skills, I think is very powerful and it's so helpful to all the listeners. So I really appreciate your time today. On Thank you, sir. It was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, in the meantime, take care of yourself. And and once again, I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best.